Hello and welcome to the Pots and Trials Gardening Podcast with me, Martin, joined by Sean and Jill. Hi. And this week we're going to head into the woods to talk snowdrops. Mm. And I'm very excited because I found a bit of a bargain on eBay, which we'll talk about later. Um, But our guest is giving us some top tips for keeping your labels going in the garden as well. And there's going to be a question, well, Martin's going to answer a question about hydrangeas. Um, But first, let's hear from Michael Myers, who's a snowdrop enthusiast. So, Michael, you are a horticulturist, you're a college lecturer, you're a plantsman and you love snowdrops, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes time. But just to start with, just tell our listeners how you got into horticulture and how you got to where you are today. You know, a a well-known plantsman. (laughs) Oh, well, I have a picture of myself aged about four wheeling a wheelbarrow. And that's my sort of first recollection or evidence of having any interest in horticulture um but when i was at school i sort of you know used to look after the garden um used to look after another local garden as well for one of my neighbors and um having left sixth form i decided to sort of go down the horticulture route and uh, and go to college and i don't know if you know but back then you actually had to have a year's experience before mm. you went to college that's right. Um, yeah. uh, so I did one year at uh, Harlow Carr uh, before it became part of the, the RHS. So that's back in the 80s. And uh, I worked as a volunteer there full time, uh, you know, for uh, for a full year before going to Ask and Brian. And right. that's kind of how I started horticulture really as a profession. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, obviously you've been lecturing, haven't you, for quite a few years at Craven College and various places. Yeah, um, the lecturing's been a little bit sort of sporadic initially. Um, I did a little bit at Sheffield College and some uh, some work for Harlow Carr and that. Uh, but then in around 2000, I was asked by my former boss at Harlow Carr if I would go and do some standing teaching um, for Craven College. And that's mm-hmm. how a lot of people get into teaching in FE is sort of, you know, the part-time route. And it just gradually, you know, became sort of more and more hours until I was then offered a, uh, what they call a 0.5 post, you know, um, half the work for half the pay. And then eventually, <laughs> you know, it became a um, a full-time role. And uh, you know, as I say, I've been doing that for over 20 years now. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I must admit, I did I did a nine years of lecturing at uh, um, the Brackenhurst College in Nottinghamshire many years mm. ago, and I, I did thoroughly enjoy it. I, I do I do miss doing that. But of course, snowdrops is one of the things <laughs> you're best known for. I mean, I know you do lots of talks to garden clubs and that, and you're often referred to just as the snowdrop man because that's how people <laughs> know you. Um, and so, why snowdrops? I mean, you you have got mm. I know a big collection of them. You've got you have got an amazing amazing knowledge of snowdrops so you love all plants i know but what attracted you to snowdrops uh, that's a, that's a very good question um i don't really know actually <laughs> um i suppose initially we used to have a fairly small garden and so i developed an interest in alpines and and bulbs because you know what it's like if you're a plantsman you cannot say no to a new plant mm. Um, but if you've got a small garden, you can only grow a certain number of trees and shrubs. So I, I kind of thought, oh, well, if I grow small plants, I'll be able to pack lots and lots in. And um, I suppose I would have been in maybe my mid-teens um, 
when I went to visit a garden up in Bulin. I don't know if you remember Sixton Thompson, Mr. Sixton Thompson, who used to be, uh, I think he was director at Harlow Car. He used to open I know the car. name, yes. And he, yeah. he wrote for the Yorkshire Post, horticultural column for the, uh, the Yorkshire Post. And um, he gave me some bulbs of S. Arnott and Atkinsii. And as I say, I would have been maybe 15, 16, 17 years old when I got those. And that kind of started my interest in snowdrops. And whilst I was at college, again, um, you had to have a year in industry as a sandwich year back then. Mm -hmm. And so I did six months at Wisley. And when I was at Wisley, I was working alongside uh, a young man called Matt Bishop. And Matt mm -hmm. went on to write what many people regard as the, uh, the you know, the definitive guide to snowdrops, along with uh, John Grimshaw and Aaron Davis. And, um, you know, even back then, he was uh, a complete snowdrop uh, fanatic. And um, I guess some of that rubbed off on me. And I, I started really collecting in earnest, I suppose, from about then. Um, so that, you know, as I say, that was when I was at college, Ascombe Bryan, in, in my middle right. year. So um, you you did start your collection fairly young in your career then, basically. Yeah, I would have been in my sort of late teens, yeah. I guess, when I started to collect them. And back then, of course, there wasn't that sort of interest that you've got today. You know, the... There was still quite a number of cultivars, but there wasn't the sort of the massive number of cultivars that you have now. All the range of forms, you know, we've mm. seen that really in the last sort of 30 or so years. And the, the price is, of course, just going silly as well. Yeah, well, exactly. Yes. I mean, we'll perhaps touch on that in a minute. So, um, mm -hmm. but how many different types do you think you've got then, species and cultivars of snowdrop in your garden? I've, I've got most of the species. There's a couple which I've not got. So there's about, I think there's around 20 or so species. It depends which um, book you read. Um, and there's a couple of those which I don't grow, which are really quite scarce and, and quite difficult to grow. Um, I probably have somewhere in the region about four to 500 different snowdrops. Wow. And yeah. the problem, of course, is finding space for them. I, I would ideally like to have them all in the garden uh, growing in borders but some are in pots and they're grown in sand plunges and right. once they've clumped up a little bit I do then try to find space in the garden but uh, you've got to be careful because you don't want to be digging them up by accident or having them smothered by you know more vigorous plants that's one of the key things. I suppose that's a problem isn't it if you just plant them all in the garden it's keeping them as individual clumps so that they don't yeah. merge with each other um so yeah which is which is quite difficult to do isn't it really that's a big big responsibility having four to five hundred different <laughs> types of snowdrops and because yeah. presumably i know you label methodically around the garden i saw something on social media only a week or so ago where i think you were saying you you paint your labels black white these ah. are white labels don't you paint them black and then scratch off to reveal the white underneath yeah well that that was an experiment i did maybe 15 or more years ago i just got some normal uh white labels white plastic labels and painted them with um hammerite you know the, the really strong black paint mm. uh might have given them a couple of coats but you can get it as a spray and so i think i, I remember rightly i hung them up and sprayed them yeah and um then as you say once they're dry you can actually scratch out the names and uh those labels the ones that i did back then have, have lasted as say 15 years which normally uh, a white label will have you know the name will have rubbed off by then 
but I don't rely just on labels. I do actually make a plan of the bed as well, right. because you know what labels are like. Invariably, they they get broken, lost, or um, you know, you, you know the the, uh, the labels just become uh, um, so you know so you can't read them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they deteriorate, don't they? I mean, I, I would imagine, Michael, that you can recognise an awful lot just by looking at them. But to a layman like me, I mean, I love snowdrops, but so many of them look very similar. And they've only got very subtle differences, haven't they? So identifying must be quite a skill to be able to do that. Yeah, I, I think snowdrop enthusiasts, you, you probably know the name for them, galanthophiles. Yeah. So galanthophiles are kind of really like the horticultural strain. Uh, so stamp collectors are train spotters. You know, we we're obsessed with sort of minute details. And and would you? Tra- are you a galanthophile? Probably. Um, <laughs> that means yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Almost certainly, I I would be. I, I must admit, I don't spend a lot of money on them. You get to the point where you end up swapping with people, mm. and that's how most of my new plants come in now just by sort of swapping uh because some of the new varieties are just silly money and to be perfectly honest i i just would rather see if they're good garden plants before i actually obtain them yeah. Yeah. um otherwise you can end up wasting a lot of uh, of money and and what would you say is silly money what do people pay for some of these you know unusual rare yeah snowdrop bulbs or, or you know buy them in the green presumably i don't know what do they pay for them what sort of money changes hands well there, there is a snowdrop called golden fleece which a few years ago uh, fetched nearly 1400 pounds wow for one bulb on ebay uh i think last year one sold for about 1900 and mm. there are bulbs currently being advertised as possibly going on eBay this year, which could actually set a new world record again. So I really wouldn't be surprised to see the £2,000 barrier broken by a name Snowdrop. Wow, and, uh, and, you and know, that's one people, bulb, just one. That's bulb. one bulb, yes. Yeah. You know, and if you, that, yeah, if you lose that bulb, that's gone, hasn't it? So presumably, if you're buying that bulb, you want to try and bulk it up as quickly as you can, so that you've got several <laughs> bulbs. <laughs> well, a lot of the rare ones. Um, some of the uh, you know the rare bulbs when they're sold uh what the people who do when they buy them first thing they do following summer is chop them up mm-hmm. um rather like a terry's chocolate orange to make chips and those can then be used to propagate from mm-hmm. so it's a it's a, um, a method that's used for things like daffodils and that as well so mm-hmm. the bulbs in the dormant season just chopped up into segments put into a sterile media and you get little bulbs then forming over the course of the summer they can be planted out in the uh in the autumn grown on and you could potentially get a flowering sized bulb in a couple of years right, so it's a yeah. much quicker way of bulking them up than mm. just by natural uh division and when you're doing that so you're you're sort of if, if you i suppose if you you could practice on an onion couldn't you you're cutting <laughs> downwards yeah uh, and intersections like you say like a, a terry's chocolate orange do you have to have a little piece of the uh, the basil uh, plate attached yeah, that, to it that's normally recommended but i do know people who chip um snowdrops who often find the bulbs forming along the cut surfaces other than where the base plate is right because i'd always thought that the base plate which is equivalent to the stem mm. is where the new bulbs come from but it's not always the case a, a lot oh. of them do but you can sometimes get them forming actually from the scale leaves as well yeah 
Okay, interesting. But they're normally done, as you say, with a little bit of the base plate at the at the base of the chip. Chips, snowdrop chips. <laughs> snow I wonder what they'd like with a bit of salt and vinegar on. Yeah, drive them in the air fryer. <laughs> yeah, you, you need a lot with a piece of haddock. <laughs> no, it's, it is a very good way. I've never done it with snowdrops. I've tried it with a daffodil and I've done a similar thing with uh, lilies where you can take off the individual scales and it, it does work. And that's how these enthusiasts just bulk them mm. up. Um, so I, I might try that because we've got not on a snowdrop, we've got a daffodil I'd love to bulk up. So I, I might have a go at mm. doing that with mm. it. It must take but, a little yeah. bit longer, does it? I mean, I was thinking because otherwise, why wouldn't you do that with, say, onion sets and just cut them all up and have multiple amounts of onions you know does it take well, a bit longer a very very good question i mean an, an onion that we eat in the garden is a biennial so it dies after it's flowered whereas a daffodil a snowdrop is a true perennial bulb that just comes back year after year but you could do it in theory with any any bulb if it's got um you know that same sort of structure so yeah particularly if it's costing nearly two thousand pounds exactly yeah. yes i had no idea there were so many varieties got to be brave to start cutting that up haven't you right yeah. you just spent two thousand pounds on it I mean, yeah you, know, you want I'm, it to be the only one would you i don't want to be disrespectful but i mean i feel like they might be being fleeced by you know, oh. <laughs> well <laughs> <laughs> I, after michael had, had sort of said how much that golden fleece um bulb was was it the bulb or the plant it was a plant wasn't mm, it yes i did have a little look on ebay and found a golden fleece for 89.99 so that's the positive bargain mm, isn't it really yeah get it get it yes <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, the golden fleece in New York. Yeah. Anyway, that's. Uh, I, I think most people just want drifts of sort of yeah. the common snowdrops because they're, they're beautiful, aren't they? They really yeah. are lovely to see them in the garden, and, and this is the time when they, you know, they're all opening everywhere you go. You see them in the vergers and people's gardens are great to see. And you, we've grown them in, in pots before, haven't oh. we? And had them because we've got a little like a little welly rack outside the back door, which has got a shelf on the top. So we've done them in pots, and you've just put a little bit of moss around the, the top of the bowl to cover the soil up, and then you can actually see the snowdrop flower. Then because when they're on the ground, you can't see inside unless you're lying on the Ooh, ground. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. and you know, pick a few from the garden and bring them. I mean, Michael, um, yeah. you know, when we did the chat, he'd got some in a little vase that he showed me. So, you know, pick them, put them in a little egg cup or something, because they're just beautiful to mm. have on a windowsill. They really just are. Just a little note for international viewers, wellies is another word for boots. <laughs> so welly rack <laughs> is like a boot rack. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. <yeah>. Just clear <laughs> that up. Um, I remember going to film, my time with you, Martin, Hopton Hall in Derbyshire. Lots of beautiful snowdrops there in the woods. Yes, uh, we did many know. years ago. Yeah, we filmed in a few over the years. Um, yeah. yeah, and, and they are some really popular. Places some of them are closed to because visit. of flooding at the minute, as I understand. I know that right. some of the mm. places are struggling a bit for that. But yeah, uh, no, um, always worth going to the woods to see some snowdrops. It just lifts your lifts your spirit. In fact, one of our early Pots and Charles videos with Jonathan Mosley, you filmed in uh, in the woods in uh, Beaver, I think it was, we, looking for snowdrops. That's right. Yeah, well remembered. Yeah, and I, I do think we were struggling to actually find snowdrops on that filming. But hey, that you know, it's a minor point. It's a minor point. Um, <laughs> it was a, it was a bit early in the season, I think. Yes, we were a little yeah. bit early. Yeah, well, so, we're yeah. going to have a chat with Michael about um, open days in the next part, aren't you? Absolutely. Oh, where yes. you can see stuff. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Any jobs we should be getting up to at the moment, Martin? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, a, a few jobs you can be doing um, is if you've got a little greenhouse, and you know, soon we're going to be sowing seeds. In fact, I've already started a little bit. Um, but make sure everything is clean and ready to go. So greenhouse cleaned out. You know, your, your seed trays, your plant pots are nice and clean. Uh, and bring your bag of compost indoors. It's just gives it 
you know, a few days to get a degree or two warmer. So you're not putting seeds into freezing cold compost. So that's something that you can be doing. I'm actually going to be sowing this week my tomatoes, my peppers and my aubergine seed. Um, so the uh, the seed that we've been sent by Kings a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to be sowing those. They will go in a propagator. They do need heat. So they're no good in a cold greenhouse unless you've got a little heated propagator in there as well. And the other thing is, if you've got apples and pears, I know I keep talking about pruning, but you know you need to think really by the end of February you want to have done your apples and pears if possible. Um, and you know whether it's a large tree, a small tree, a bush tree, it's time to give it a tidy up, thin it out a little bit. In fact, we did our big tree a couple we of weeks ago. Bramley. It's done. It's done, and it's on a pots and trials video from yes, a couple of really weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And it was a monster. It really was. It <laughs> took a day and a half to do, really, but. Uh, we did just... it so you don't have to go to those extremes but even if you're only taking off a few branches to open up the tree and keep it into shape now's the perfect time to do it before we get really busy doing other things in the garden what, what if you've got a small sapling you know a very very young tree uh, apple tree is it, you know is there still need to be pruning to be done i don't know i can't i'm, my, I'm not can't get my words out right but i did just remember that last week i said i was going to go and get a winter wash and i've completely forgotten to do it so um my young sapling which obviously i'm I'm going to, you know, get a winter wash very soon. <laughs> is there any pruning I should be doing with it? Or is it, you know, does it depend yeah, on Yeah, well, there is. If you've got a young apple tree, then we do what we call formative pruning. So we, we do, we're developing the shape. Because very often, if you're buying a, uh, what we call a maiden, which is a one-year-old apple tree, it's just usually one straight stem. And it might have a few small side shoots on it, which we call feathers. What you normally do is take the top out. And that encourages those side shoots to grow out. Because you want a, a multi-stemmed plant rather than just a vertical stem so yes simply just taking the top out of a vertical one will encourage some side shoots and that starts to form the lovely goblet shape that you're looking for if you've got a question for martin do drop us an email there's a listener's question coming up shortly but if you want to drop us an email info at potsandtrials.com that's the place to send your questions now let's hear some more from michael So, Michael, anybody wanting to sort of see more snowdrops, because we are, you know, now in the snowdrop time, although they have got quite a long flowering period, haven't they? Some start mm-hmm. very early, some go on later. So when could you, if you've got a bit of a collection, when could you expect to see your first snowdrop flowers? Well, um, there are some species which will flower as early as October. Some people maybe even get them in flower in September. Mm-hmm. But if you go to any of the Alpine Garden Society shows in the autumn, um, such as the one at Harlow Car in, in October, you'll always see snowdrops on the display benches. Most of them are forms of either Galanthus reginae olgae or Galanthus peschmenii, and they're both bona fide autumn flowering species. All right. And then as you go into November and December, you get early flowering cultivars, forms of some of the other species like Galanthus plicatus and Galanthus elwesii, um, there's a lovely variety called Barnes, which I usually have in flower um, in December. It's still in flower now. So it has a really, really long flowering season. Free right. um, ships is a form of Galanthus plicatus. And if you know your Christmas carols, we saw free ships come sailing in. That again is a really good snowdrop, which is a reliable Christmas flower. So, right. you know, it, it's not just February. We have snowdrops in flower now from you know, late September, October, depending on, on where you are, through to around April. 
Right. I suppose most people, so you could extend them for a long time, but most people mm-hmm. will associate them with sort of February into March, won't they? And this is the time of the year when we see lots of snowdrop days and snowdrop events, um, and they're getting really, really popular. Uh, and people just love to see the snowdrops at those. And I know you get involved in some as well, don't you? Yeah, I, I do. I've, um, I'm doing an event up at Cambo in St Andrews um, in February and I do you know, quite a few talks on snowdrops to, to garden clubs and, and such like. Um, there's quite a few events, as you say, um, quite a lot of gardens now open specifically for the snowdrops. Um, York Gate, Adeline Leeds, they've got their sort of snowdrop event coming up in February. Uh, and then again, that, you know, one of the things they're doing is sort of extending the collection because of the interest in winter gardening, but specifically snowdrops. And if anyone's wanting to know where there are events locally uh, to, to see snowdrops, um, there's a lady on social media called Beth Otway who goes under the name Pumpkin Beth. And she's actually provided a, a really, really comprehensive list of events up and down the country you can go on her web it, it, uh, the link from twitter actually takes you through to her, her website and you can search the events according to county and and date and and such like so it's uh you know really really useful thing um i think i just put in um snowdrop events on on um uh, uh, a search in twitter and it just comes up with um, her details and she oh, does right. that every year. It's a re- really yeah. useful uh, Which is good, resource. Good because, as you say, wherever you live, um, you know, in the UK, there's going to be some snowdrop events. So it, it's nice mm. to find them out, and it's a great place, I suppose, because to buy them. Because very often you will see all these drifts of snowdrops, and they'll often have some for sale in pots. So anybody wanting to start <clears> off with a few, it's a a good mm-hmm. way to get some. Absolutely, yeah. And you don't have to break the bank to start a snowdrop collection. In fact, I'd I'd always recommend buying some of the older tried and tested varieties mm. first. Mm. Um, you know, don't go for some of the really more expensive varieties, um, you know, because uh, they can die, can snowdrops. There are a few things that eat them and kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, our scissors fly and there's a, a nasty disease called Stagnosphora, which again can sometimes get into uh, collections and you know there's it, nothing more annoying than spending a lot of money on a snowdrop and then finding the following year it doesn't come up yeah no <clears throat> you would be devastated wouldn't you so mm-hmm. if anybody wanted to get started you know have you got sort of two or three types that are fairly tried and tested I know everything can, can, can succumb to damage and, and disease, mm-hmm. but sort of ones that are a bit more vigorous that will bulk up quickly and make some nice clumps in your garden. Yeah, well, you've got, I mean, the, um, snowdrops aren't native to the UK. They were introductions um, from the continent. So Glanthus nivalis, which is the one which you you know we see in parks and woodlands throughout the country, mm-hmm. um, as I say, is naturalised. And so is the double form, Floriplina, but that's sterile. So all the double snowdrops you see are all literally divisions of one another. And both of those are, you know, exceptionally good garden plants and, and commonly available. Um, Galanthus S. Arnott is a hybrid and it's a relatively inexpensive cultivar. Um, you might pay sort of two, three pounds for a bulb, but it's a good vigorous one and it's a good large flower. And it's one as well that when you see it massed, particularly if it's grown in a, a fairly sunny position, you get this wonderful 
sort of honey fragrance from it as well. Mm. All snowdrops probably have some scent, but it's only really on a nice warm sunny day when they fully open out that you can appreciate it. So I always think they're better planted somewhere where they get a little bit of sunshine on them. Yeah, and and I've I've known people actually cut little bunches from the garden and bring them in, and you do get that delicate scent that way as well, don't you? So uh, lovely, lovely little flowers they are. Absolutely, and of course, you know, you we were talking earlier about the variation in them. The variation that we now see is far greater than it was when I first started collecting snowdrops. You know, they're so-called yellow snowdrops, but what you see there is that the markings that are normally green are actually yellow. And there are some mm. people who just collect the yellows. Really? Uh, some of them, yeah, absolutely. And in, in fact, um, Golden Fleece was a yellow snowdrop, and some of the most expensive ones do have yellow markings. But there are also green snowdrops, uh, which are almost entirely green. The outer petals and the inner ones are almost entirely green. And those, again, are very, very collectible. Um, there's some huge snowdrops. Um, I have one called Rod Martin Regulus, and it's probably about at least twice the size of a normal snowdrop. Uh, you know, some of the snowdrops are, are really huge flowers. And, it, mm. you know, I think purists would say that sometimes they're going a little bit away from what snowdrops should look like. Um, you know, it's the more bizarre ones and the sort of unusual ones which are, um, you know, becoming more and more collectible. But mm -hmm. you could argue they're becoming less and less like snowdrops. Yeah, and I think most people just want to see drifts of white snowdrops underneath their shrubs in the garden, don't they? So, uh, um, so yeah, you've given us a few good ones. What about planting, Michael? Are you are you a fan of planting in the green, or do you <laughs> buy bulbs in the autumn, or how do you? How's the best way to somebody to succeed? Oh, the, the, this is um, a little bit of a debatable topic, actually, um, because one thing I think most snowdrop enthusiasts would agree with is don't buy the pre-packs in the garden centres. Snowdrops don't like being dried out, and so they very rarely establish well. However, a lot of enthusiasts now do buy dormant bulbs in the summer. And mm. the reason for that is that you're not checking the growth through damaging the roots when you lift them. So providing you can find a supplier who lifts them and sends them straight away, usually in early summer, so it can be sort of around June time, then that is actually now, for a lot of people, the preferred way of obtaining okay. them. I actually still like doing them in the green, and quite a lot of people still sell them in the green. So that means that you, you, you lift them and divide them when they're in full growth. So that can be uh, any time from sort of after Christmas through to after they've finished flowering and they're starting to die back. But you've got to be careful not to damage the roots. So when you're teasing them apart, don't damage them because they only make one set of roots a year. And so you will check their growth. <clears throat> be careful not to let the roots dry out or get frosted as well. And so ideally, when you're lifting them and dividing them, trans you know, replant them straight away. Yeah. You'll get a little bit of a checking growth, but... The, the benefit, I suppose, of um, transplanting them in the green is you can see where they are. So you don't damage the bulbs trying to find them when they're dormant. And you can also make sure that they're, you know, they're the right variety as well. And I suppose if you can get them, you know, if a friend's got some in the garden, they're happy to let you have some. If you can wait until they're almost dying down later on in spring, so they've flowered and the leaves are going yellow and brown, I suppose by then 
they're putting all the goodness back into the bulb so that's probably a good time to do it you can still physically see them and where you're planting them but they're on that process of dying down aren't they by then yeah yeah absolutely yeah i mean you know i i tend to sort of lift them and divide them um whenever people are wanting them but yeah you've just got to make sure that the weather conditions are suitable don't do them in frosty weather mm -hmm. and as i say don't leave them to dry out at all um mm -hmm. you know cover them over just like you would with you know bare root shrubs you know make sure the roots don't get dried out yeah. and damaged okay and and to finish off we've got to touch on your garden because you've got an amazing garden i've been to it um you're up there <laughs> in north yorkshire in nidderdale um you know that you, your house looks down over the garden um and you've done an awful lot of work there just full of unusual plants so you know how would you describe your garden because it is it is amazing it really is well, it's it's a lot of hard work it's about half an <laughs> acre um two thirds of it at the front of the house and there's a third at the back which is more of a sort of like a, a work area really but it's very much a sort of plant enthusiast's garden. Um, you you know the problem. If you buy a new plant, you've got to wait for something to die to have a gap to put it yeah. in. Um, that's the sort of problem I tend to have, particularly with you know larger plants like shrubs. And so, again, it's quite nice to have bulbs, not just snowdrops, but um, trilliums, crocuses, colchicums, lots and lots of bulbs under planting, uh, you know, intermingling with the, uh, you know, with the other plants. Um, yeah. It is very much a sort of garden, really, for all seasons. And I think, actually, I would say the, the worst time to visit is actually in the summer. Mm -hmm. There's quite a lot of autumn colour from uh, autumn leaf colour from the trees and shrubs and then bulbs. And then obviously through the winter, which is one of my particular interests um, with witch hazels, hellebores, loads and loads of hellebores in the garden, winter aconite, cyclamen and, of course, the snowdrops. And then as we go into the spring, there's then a gradual succession of different bulbs with things like, uh, you know, trilliums, uh, erythroniums and such like. Um, and as I say, I suppose it gets a little bit boring in the summer because I can go and visit other gardens then. Well, yeah, but you say that, uh, Michael. At the time I came was in the summer but and uh, with a group of people and they were all blown away because it, it's just so well laid out. You know, you've got lots of levels because you're on a slope, mm -hmm. uh, you've got water in there, you've got some really unusual plants, lots of good stonework because you're, you're very handy at the stonework as well so um don't undersell it in the summer it's still an amazing <laughs> garden so i'm gonna have to come one day in the spring aren't i and see it or the autumn and see it at different times yeah march april's quite a nice time to sort of see the bulbs um mm -hmm. obviously the snow drops in in february uh and that and you know i do i do open occasionally we, you know we have as you know garden clubs and that around but um um it, it's half an acre and i probably have about a day a week in the garden on average so you know as you go into the summer the, the problem there of course is keeping up with the weeds yeah. um the beauty of winter gardens of course is that most of the weeds are on you know hidden away and uh, mm -hmm. underground you can't see yeah. them yeah no well it is an amazing garden if anybody ever gets the <laughs> chance to see it then uh, then please do go michael thank, oh, thank you, you very much for taking the time to have a chat to me um, and giving us a bit more info about snowdrops and hopefully people will go out you know in the next month or so and see snowdrops growing in the wild in people's gardens yeah well there's some very good snowdrop growers in lincolnshire so i don't know if you've i don't know if you've found any of them yet but uh, no, there's some, yes. some good gardens down there and some some real enthusiasts as well so excellent thank you michael you're welcome
So did you find any? Have you found any yet? <laughs> well, we, we haven't visited any yet. There are a couple not a million miles from mm. us. And one of them is, in fact, quite close. We're going to go to it. Um, I think they're open on the 18th of February, so uh, next weekend. And that's Hackthorn Hall. It's a private house. Um, small estate. They've got a lovely walled garden. We need to go there with we the camera. We went to it in the summer, didn't we? And it we looks did. gorgeous. So, uh, so it'll be nice to see it at this time of year. Yes, and they've got lots of woodland. So they've got woodland walks with the snowdrop. So mm. that's Hackthorn uh, Hall, which is north of Lincoln. And another one we have been to, I don't think we'll get time to get to it this year, is Goldsborough Hall near Harrogate. Again, private house, you get to wander around the grounds. And in fact, we ended that one with a lovely afternoon tea by a log fire, didn't we, if I remember? Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yes, yes we did. Yes. That was, yeah, that was nice. So yeah, but wherever you are, there will be snowdrop weekends happening over the next month or so. So just, you know, look locally and, and go and enjoy them because it's, it's a good, I think after winter... Um, it still is winter, I know, but it just makes you feel that spring is on the way when you see the snowdrops. Bearing in mind the value of some of these snowdrops, is there a problem with theft at all, especially at the open days? You know, do people walk around with a little trowel and, you know, not that I'm suggesting that's something, I mean, you obviously shouldn't, but does that happen? It, it does happen. Uh, and I know of gardens where that has happened, you know, some of the RHS gardens. And we used to go to one called Hodsock many years ago. We probably filmed probably, there, Sean, yeah. with you yeah, years yeah. ago. Um, which is no longer does the snowdrop weekends. I don't think, anyway, that they're not as big as they were. But they, mm. if they labelled a, a rare one, mm. the chances are it would disappear. So, yeah. yes, you've got to be really careful with them. It's such mm. a shame that there's so much interest in them, but then there are a minority of people that want to dig them up and take them, which yeah. is such a shame. Yeah. There's often people doing that with cuttings as well, I suppose, in some gardens, aren't there? Taking cuttings of people's yeah. plants, sneak, sneaking them. Yeah, they they do. I mean, when we used to open our garden, if anybody said, oh, I love that plant, can I have a bit? Yeah. I would get my secretaires, get a polythene bag and cut them a bit off. And I think that's absolutely fine. It's when people go around helping themselves, yeah. isn't it, that yeah. you don't want. Not, so, not, exactly. not ideal. <laughs> um, we have had a question on YouTube, um, if you're up for answering it, Martin. It was uh, yet again another hydrangea-related question because, you know, we're very popular in the hydrangea mm. uh, community <laughs> on YouTube. Um, <clears throat> Nick Knack 12 Abel. So I'm guessing this is Nick. Um, thank you, Martin. Most helpful hydrangea pruning video. If anyone wants to see that, you can see that on our YouTube channel, of course. I have the paniculatas in containers. Can I treat them like the arborescence and cut them down to the base, or do they have to have the structured frame? Thank you. Right. Good question, because last week we touched on the hydrangea macrophylla, mm -hmm. which is sort of the, the mop head ones that people know, the pinks and the blues that you prune. Um, not too hard. You're just taking off the bit of the old one, the old flowers. You mentioned here paniculata and arborescence. They're a different type. People might have heard of one called Annabelle, uh, which produces big white heads in July and August. And with both of those, they flower on new wood. So you can cut them back really hard in March time or even this time of the year. You'd be fine to do it. Um, with Annabelle, we ca you can cut them down to ground level. And that's exactly how I treat mine, you know, within an inch or so of ground level. Everything is cut down, it regenerates, makes strong new growth, and it's on that new growth that you get your flowers later on in the summer. Similar thing happens with paniculata, but normally you have a bit of a woody frame. So you would prune them down maybe to, some people do it to a foot, some people to two feet, whatever effect you want. So you'd have those old branches at the base, and then you cut back to that framework every year and get your new growth growing out sort of the knuckles. So basically Nick wants to know if he can treat them like 
Annabelle and cut them right down. I think from a young plant, you could do it. So if you've got a young plant, cut it down to just two or three inches, you'll get new growth and then every year keep cutting it down to that point. And it's on that lovely strong growth that you get those cone-shaped flowers then in August time. If you'd got one of those and you'd not done any pruning for a few years and it got really out of hand, Mm. I'm just thinking about a friend of ours who had let his go uh, quite badly. Is that worth cutting those right down and then starting from scratch with them there's always an element of risk because but but hydrangea is normally fairly good at growing from old wood so even if you've got an old one and you cut it quite hard you know yeah. you cut something that's you know thickness of a broom handle it will usually shoot from a mm. bud below that so i think you would still get away with it mm. yeah and and you know now's the time to do it mm. and they mention um they're in containers does that make much of a difference if they're in the ground or in containers no, all I'd, I mean, you don't always get the same amount of vigour in a container because the roots are that little bit restricted by the pot uh, and they obviously rely on you for water and food. So you feed more in a container. As, but as long as you give them plenty of water when they're growing and a good dose of fertiliser, you'll still get strong growth. Fantastic. And remember, if you've got a question for Martin, I know I say it every time, every week, but info at potsandtrials.com is the email address. Just drop us an email and we'll get it answered on the podcast. New episodes out every Sunday. Yeah, and we'll be back again next week with some more gardening talk. So we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Watch the videos on YouTube or Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter or X, and subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. For more information, go to potsandtrials.com.